Arrogance. Webster's defines it as exaggerating or disposed to exaggerate one's own worth or importance, often by an overbearing manner, showing an offensive attitude of superiority. In the Greek, the word translated as arrogant in verse 18 is phuseo. If I said that right, Mike, you're the other Greek guy. Phuseo, pretty close. To be puffed up, to bear oneself loftily, to be proud. This is the opposite of God. And I say that with confidence, not arrogance, based on what Scripture tells us about God. St. John was perfectly clear that God is love. St. Paul was perfectly clear that love is not arrogant. Same word in chapter 13 that he uses in verse 4, and chapter 4, verse 18. And obviously, when God was in the human form, there was nothing arrogant about him. Yet as Paul begins his second essay of this incredible letter to the Corinthians that we are studying, he calls out a number of the Corinthian believers and exposes them as arrogant. With one well-chosen word, he effectively defines these folks and their lifestyles as opposite God in his ways. As decidedly other than what followers of Christ should be. Paul's gloves are now off, so to speak. We spent 14 weeks looking at his first essay and the somewhat gentle style of his persuasion in that first essay. Granted, yes, there was some moments of biting sarcasm and irony, but overall it was a very pastoral essay. That has now given way to some very direct, no-holds-barred, aggressive indictments of some of the believers and the lives they are living and the most piercing verdicts are directed at this anomaly, that they are arrogant. For Paul knows arrogance has absolutely nothing to do with the imitation of Jesus Christ. And furthermore, as we will see clearly, I hope, it is this arrogance that is behind their excessive and at times very deplorable behavior. Now, before we continue, I want to do two side notes. <clears throat> Excuse me. This arrogance is the worst kind of arrogance because it is spiritual arrogance. You know, it is one thing to be arrogant if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ. But to be, follow, but to be arrogant not only as a follower of Jesus Christ, but exactly because you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that is about as bad as it gets. To be arrogant as a follower of the most humble God ever, that's like an oxymoron from hell, which would be a great Halloween costume if you figure out how to do it. What are you? I'm an oxymoron from hell. You like it? <laughs> All right. Now, another side note that we have to get in our heads as we prepare to understand where Paul goes in his letter. It's very important. Paul, while certainly dealing with specific issues among some people in Corinth, is always more concerned with the larger issue of spiritual arrogance and the decided lack of imitation of Christ within the Corinthian community than he is with the specific issues. 
And this is important. For example, and we're going to be looking at this in some detail in the next few weeks. Here he is ripping them for their arrogance. And then as an illustration of such, he brings up a guy that's sleeping with his stepmother. But if you read this carefully, you realize Paul's focus remains on the arrogance of the many in the community and not on the guy himself. This is vital to get. So, you guys become arrogant. And oh, by the way, this is what your arrogance is leading to. Someone's actually sleeping with his stepmother. Then he goes right back to the community. You, plural, have become arrogant. Then he says what he would have done, which is just another way of saying, oh, and by the way, all you arrogant people aren't doing the right thing. And then he concludes with, you're boasting, your arrogance is not good. Oh, interesting. We, on the other hand, love to read chapter 5 in 1 Corinthians and focus on the guy sleeping with his stepmother. Because... We don't see ourselves in that guy. There's no reflection of us in him. I'm not sitting with my stepmother. So we can pull out the big guns. And we can judge, jury, and execution the poor, horrible, disgusting sinner. And get rid of him. Oh. But if we ever looked at the whole context of what Paul is writing, oh, he's talking about people that are spiritually arrogant. Now all of a sudden our face starts to come into view, doesn't it? Boy, it's so much easier to read Paul when we don't have to see ourselves. We'll just look at the other people. Aren't you excited for what's coming? This is a great letter. And there is so much to learn and have our eyes open to. So anyway, now we're going to begin today our exploration of the second essay that makes up this incredible letter. We've already gone through the cross and Christian unity. Now we're going to look at men and women in the human family. Okay, which starts in 417 and runs through chapter 7, verse 40. And a reminder, or for visitors... We've been following Kenneth Bailey's breakdown. He's a Middle Eastern scholar, and this is his breakdown of what the essays look like in Corinth. But I need to mention and point out, there is considerable disagreement among scholars excuse me, as to where the second essay actually begins. Many Western scholars hold that chapter 5, verse 1 begins the second essay. <coughs> Another reason sort of we read chapter 5 by itself. And that the last verses of chapter 4 here, 17 through the end of chapter 4, they think are either an aside by Paul, something he probably tucked in later when he was putting the letter together, or they think it's actually the end of the first essay. Now, for purposes of time and the value of application, we're not going to look at all of these arguments. However, I want to mention two reasons why I side with Bailey on this as being the beginning of the second essay. There are many reasons, but these are the two more persuasive ones. Number one, as early as 867 A.D., Middle Eastern church leaders and scholars recognized a break in the text between verse 16 and verse 17 of chapter 4. 
And, and Bailey says, no ancient Middle Eastern paragraph system divided the text at chapter 5, verse 1. And the second reason I side with Bailey on this is that in verse 17, he references, just as I teach everywhere in every church, he's referencing the tradition, the gospel tradition, the church tradition. Well, most scholars agree, even the ones that disagree that verse 17 starts the second essay, they all agree that the other essays, Paul starts by mentioning the church tradition, especially the last three, which start in 8, 1 through 6, 11, 1 through 2, and 15. These all mention the church tradition, and everyone says, yeah, that's the beginning of the next essay. So why wouldn't it hold the same here? So that's why I subscribe to this being the start of the second essay. Regardless, I think the difference of opinion, the reason I note this for you, because if you're not interested, I, I understand, but I, I think it's important that I note this for a few reasons. Number one, remember what we have talked about with chapter and verse breakdown. Use them for reference, but do not put too much weight in them as a suggestion for context that can really throw off our reading of Scripture. So be, just use them for reference, how to find something, but don't use them for suggestion of context. In context, that's another reason I mention this, this disagreement. If it doesn't start, the second essay doesn't start till 5.1, okay, maybe chapter 5 gets read slightly differently. But if it starts with this whole bit on arrogance, do you see what happens? Now it's a different context. And we tend to take things out of context and we miss the overriding theme because maybe we don't know where the context is. And it's really challenging here in, in, in the West because we, we've all got our Bibles and we all have our translations. And like the Bible I have, I, I don't bring here, it's at home, but I've had it since I was 18 years old. It was a gift. It's been rebound a number of times. It's been all over the world to me. I need that Bible because I'm not, this, I'm not the kind of mind that memorizes chapter and verse. I just know where it is. So I just know, in this one Bible, I know where it is. I couldn't find it in anybody else's Bible. But the thing that's been interesting to me as I've read this since I've been 18, and, and you know, that's almost 30 years since I've had this, is that it's a Ryrie study Bible. And I didn't even realize, but for the first five years of having this Bible, I was becoming a disciple of Ryrie. His breakdowns, his chapter, the way he puts headings before certain verses, his footnotes... And then as I started to grow and read and study more and more, and I started to realize, oh my gosh, I don't really agree with Ryrie on a lot of this stuff. But it had really, really colored my reading of Scripture. So I think we have to be careful in, in how we approach this. And finally, the important thing is, the Bible is not a textbook. It's not. Yet chapter and verse sort of make us think that way, don't they? Because it's, it it's just has that textbook feel when we get into chapter and verse. So it's not a textbook. Instead, it is God's story. We need to pray over it, read it. Pray over it, read it again. Pray over it, read it, etc., 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 which I think is exciting that Paul is interested in doing this study to maybe help us see that it's much bigger than a textbook. So, anyway, second essay begins. Bailey has found the following composition of the second essay. Immorality in the church runs from 417 through 68, but then the second section is actually a subsection, which starts in 56B through 68, three roadblocks, Levin, Immorality, and Lockports. Then there's the theology of sexual practice, kingdom ethics, 
theology of sexual practice joining the body, and then sexual practice in harmony with the gospel. We'll probably be on this until 2015. <laughs> um, today we're going to look at the opening homily of the first section. So immorality in the church is the first section, and Paul's little opening homily here is called The Problem, Arrogance, Immorality, and what must be done. And it looks like this. You know, we, we've looked at this a few times. This is Bailey's brilliance of writing. I, I sort of wish Kevin's mom was here because she just digs this stuff. She loves it. <laughs> it's a seven-section brilliant piece of writing. It starts with an opening statement, and then there are two equal sections, three sections, two sections, each of three cameos in an ABA pattern, ABA, arrogance, a rod, arrogance, and then him removed, name of Jesus, him removed. It's just Paul's brilliant, brilliant writing. So as we get into this, let's start at the opening statement, because this is one of those verses that I love so much. When you first read it, it seems innocuous enough, right? It seems that you don't even almost need to read it. It's one of those verses, quick, get to the next verse, and you certainly don't need to take note of it, because there's really nothing there. However, I think it contains a very substantial and important statement, as well as, I think this verse contains what I call a nudge from the Holy Spirit. What I think is a nudge from the Holy Ghost to examine our own thoughts on what Scripture is and how we approach it. So let's start with that little nudge, and then we'll get back to the substantial thing. The mention of Timothy here is very, very interesting. We know that Timothy joined Paul in Corinth when Paul was first establishing the church there. That, that, there's enough evidence to support that. And Timothy may have even been with Paul in Ephesus when he was writing this letter to the Corinthian church. But there is absolutely no indication or evidence that Timothy ever made it back to Corinth. He probably got stuck in Macedonia. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who missed him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. That's probably where Timothy got. He never got back to Corinth. So, here is divinely inspired scripture. Paul writing about his own actions, about something that's going to happen, and yet it never happened. Doesn't that make you think? Think about what divine inspiration means, what the Bible is, how we're supposed to approach the Bible. See, God certainly knew Timothy was never going to get there. So why not just have Paul not include it? I happen to think the doctrine of the scriptures is one of the most complex doctrines in all of Christianity. As a concept, I think divine inspiration is just slightly less complex than the concept of the Trinity. And if you can wrap your head around that, good, good on you. I can't wrap my head around you. <laughs> Yet this tends to be one of the doctrines, in fact, a lot of people don't even know there's a doctrine in the Scriptures, but this tends to be one of the doctrines no one ever spends time with. We just listen to someone's soundbite, 
on what divine inspiration means, and we spend the rest of our life approaching Scripture that way, without ever putting any thought into one of the most complex doctrines in all of Christianity. And so we get these extremes. I know people. Here's two extremes. I know people personally who have. One extreme is their understanding of divine inspiration is God literally took over the person, took over their mind, took over their hands, and wrote the Bible. And wrote the literal words of literally what happened. On the other extreme, I know people which I've never quite figured out why they're Christian, but I know them, that don't think God had anything to do with the composition of the Bible. It was just some smart people and some hyper-spiritual people. I bring this up to challenge us. I don't have an answer for you. I'm not going to tell you what I think. Like I said, I think it's one of the most complex doctrines in Scripture. You've got ten years, maybe we can talk about it. But I bring this up to challenge us. We need to spend some time. Well, I think it's brilliant that you want to do this study. What is this book? What is it? You see, the value and immediacy for our lives that we place on this book is highly determined by what we believe divine inspiration is. Because that determines how we approach it. So on one extreme, this can cause us to approach this like a textbook, paralyzed by fear that we better get it correct. And then we become so interested in the letters, we forget the whole spirit of the thing. And then when we think we're the only ones who have it correct, we become like the Corinthians, spiritually arrogant. And then on the other extreme, if God had nothing to do with the composition of it, then what's the point? (coughs) Why and how would we ever let it speak to us deeply or authentically? See, for me, I love this book. I used to be on one of those extremes. The extreme that God just wrote the thing. Like we were the human typewriters. And I was incredibly spiritually arrogant about it, and I thought it was just a textbook that had to be correct. Approach it like that. I never loved it. I was afraid of it. I worshipped it. It was my God. Then I found God. I found Jesus Christ. And now, I love this thing. I believe this is exactly the book. Not this exact book. But the original autographs. The original signatures, if you will. The original writings exactly the story God wants us to have. The way He wants us to have it. It's beautiful. I mean, think about Genesis. I love Genesis. But I don't believe the world's 10,000 years old. I'm fine with that. Do I think Genesis is wrong? No, absolutely not. It's exactly what God wants to have. How else was God going to tell us what He did? All these thousand years later, the best scientists in the world... And the best they can come up with is Big Bang? My four-year-old, I don't have a four-year-old. When my children were four, they understood what Big Bang meant. Come on. But that's because how do you explain the unexplainable? I think the Holy Ghost did a much better job explaining the unexplainable. I love that. 
if you really want a great read on what I think is inspired, read, read Tolkien's understanding of what happened at the fall. Right, Mike? What's that in? Cimmerillion. That'll make you cry. So, but what I'm getting at, so I think, back here, I think <coughs> the Holy Ghost that Paul put this in, just nudge people to think about what they think. So I hope I nudge you enough. I hope I nudge you to think. It's the last part of this verse, though, that's more important and vital to understand as we go forward into Paul. If we are going to stay in touch with what Paul is really getting at here in this letter, we've got to understand this. We have to. We can't let it go. He is about to use all sorts of scenarios to further argue his defense of the gospel. This scenario we're going to be looking at in a few weeks, or probably not next week, but the week after, this guy sleeping with his stepmother. That's a scenario that Paul is using to further argue his defense of the cross, his defense of the gospel. If we lose sight of this bigger picture, then what's going to happen is the scenarios themselves are going to become the focus, and then we will risk ending up defending positions and beliefs that contradict the very gospel Paul is really trying to get us to embrace, which is be like Jesus Christ. That's what this letter is about. Imitate Christ. We need to live into and then live out in the world around us limitless grace, unadulterated mercy, unconditional forgiveness, and unrestrained So Paul says, and oh, by the way, this is what I teach in every church. I might alter my delivery. I might change the words I use. I might use different examples and metaphors and images. I might address different scenarios based on what's going on in those different communities But it is the same message. The foolishness of the cross trumps the wisdom of humanity. The power of a servant king crushes the power of a master king. The kingdom of God's love far surpasses the kingdom of man's hate. And the crucified God brings true life into a world dominated by death. And if we are going to follow Jesus Christ, we are supposed to imitate Jesus Christ. This letter probably took months to compose. It might have even taken years. I think he was in Ephesus for two years. There's a, there's a great verse, I think it's in Thessalonians, I who knows Paul of Thessalonians? But there's Paul's ask. No, I think it's to Timothy, and he's asking Timothy to bring his scrolls and bring his parchments. And it's because he's probably working on this letter. This is the greatest letter. It's incredible. It took a long time. Here we see, we've already seen the brilliance of Paul's writing, and here as he starts his second essay, he does this a wonderful job of looking back to his first essay looking forward to what's about to come. And in effect, he says, listen, everything I just wrote about the cross and the power of God 
is the same I teach everywhere. Everything I am about to write on men and women in the human family is all based on the same theology of a God who loves us so much he would die to save us all. We need to embrace the wisdom of the cross. We need to live out the wisdom of the cross. The wisdom of the cross is a message not about strength instead of weakness, but in fact about power through weakness. Through self-sacrificial behavior. I'll say that again. Through self-sacrificial behavior. The opposite of self-sacrificial behavior is arrogance. Self-sacrificial behavior. The message of the cross, the wisdom of the cross, is through reliance on God's power to work through us. It is not about our human power to manipulate a situation. Until we learn the words, when I am weak, then I am strong, until we learn what it means to be empty of self and full of Jesus Christ, we will continue to misread Paul's theology of leadership, status, power, and wisdom. Until then, the church will continue to play the game of arrogant power politics with the ministry an all-too-human and too-Corinthian game indeed. Might we choose to follow a humble Christ instead of arrogant Corinthians?